Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. Happy Lionsgate portal to you. If you don't know what that is, it's when the sun and the star Sirius come into an annual cosmic alignment. The height of this alignment occurs or is fully unlocked on 8-8, which was Sunday, and that was also a new moon in Leo. Big, big energy on that day. I'm sure many of you were and are working with those eights this season. Eights a number of power, manifestation, creativity. It's a very, very powerful number, and we've got two of them working this week. It's a great time for manifesting, tuning into your guides, getting super creative, and also being really picky because depending on where you're at, you might pull stuff in really quickly, maybe at a bunch of different opportunities. And you just want to be careful about which ones will work for you, which ones won't work for you. Just saying. Anywho, this week I chat with the motorcycle riding Texan who has over 45 years of expertise as a professional psychic and as a paranormal investigator. His name is John Russell, and he's witnessed over a thousand supernatural manifestations, which is a shit ton, right? Like, I mean, I talk to people who have direct experiences with entities all the time, and I still feel a thousand is a lot. I don't know, because we're talking direct, and he'll tell you some of them in this chat. He's also the author of Riding with Ghosts, Angels, and the Spirits of the Dead, a psychic and paranormal adventure that sums up his experiences with the other side, and A Knock in the Attic, True Ghost Stories and Other Spine-Chilling Paranormal Adventures. He's been on George Norrie's very famous late-night radio talk show, Coast to Coast, and a number of other shows. He also used to do rapid-fire psychic readings on air years ago, which is something we're trying to recreate, John and I, so keep an eye out for that. John is a delightful storyteller and an all-around interesting human. We talk about his first ghost encounter, how to talk politely to ghosts if they're bothering you, channeling, his strong beliefs on exorcisms, telekinesis, and more. Just hold on to your butt cheeks, okay? You are about to go on a ride with John Russell. It is time for the woo. I want to hear how you became who you are today. I think that's what's okay. most okay. interesting. Yeah. yeah, well, it goes back to when I was five years old. And my parents had left a nightlight in the hallway for me down the hallway outside of the bedroom door so that if I need to get up at night, I could make my way down the hallway, be able to see. So uh, I was sound asleep this one night and all of a sudden I was wide awake. I mean, absolutely, totally, completely wide awake. And I thought, well, this is weird. And I thought, well, maybe a noise woke me up or something. Or So I'm laying there in bed listening and no, everything's quiet as can be and I thought, well, this is really strange because I just popped up so wide awake, just fully alert. And I raised up on my elbows in bed just to kind of look around. 
down the hallway from around one of the doorways there in the hallway that went into the dining room. This old black man was peeking around the doorway, staring at me. And I screamed bloody murder because we're a white family. We didn't have anybody black living with us. So my first thought as a five-year-old child was, this is not anybody I know. Somebody's broken into the house. Right. So it's, it scared me that way because the, the, the old black guy appeared physically, physical body with clothes. He was solid. After that first scream, he walked around the doorway into the hall and walked down the hallway toward my bedroom door, locking eyes with me the whole entire time. And he was every bit as solid as you or I. I can tell you what he had on. He had on a red flannel shirt. He had on khaki pants, black shoes, black belt. He had close cropped white hair, a a white mustache. So obviously he was appearing in in a quite elderly form. Didn't wear glasses, didn't have a hat on or anything. And like I say, every bit as solid as you or I. And when he started walking down the hallway toward my bedroom, I screamed again even louder, like this blood-curdling yell, you know, God, this guy's coming for me. Mom and dad, help, you know, get here. And his his gaze was not malevolent in the least. It was kind of benign and, if anything, a little bemused. And like, uh, sorry, kid, I've, I've got to do this to you. This is how this is going to happen. And this is how your awakening is going to occur. So as I heard mom and dad begin to come running, he began to become translucent and then transparent. And then from his feet up, he vanished till all that was left was his head. I, I liken it to the Cheshire cat almost. <laughs> and that vanished and boom, he was gone. And my parents got there and I told them, I said, somebody's in the house, even though I'd just seen him vanish. I said, somebody is in the house. And they, no, 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 you just had a bad dream. And I said, no, it's not a dream. Somebody's in the house. So my mother held me and tried to get me to quit sobbing and shaking. And my dad went through the house and and checked all the doors and windows. They were all locked. He actually looked under all the beds and in the closets. And of course, there was nobody to be found. And so they told me, no, it's just a bad dream. And I knew better. I knew I had seen someone. And then it dawned on me. I had seen my first ghost. And I lay awake the rest of the night going, why did this guy come? And is he going to come back? And is he going to scare the life out of me again? And is he going to talk to me? Is he going to ask me to do something weird or strange or scary? He didn't come back. But for days after that, I spent my life looking over my shoulder, even during the daylight. You know, Uh, it was a, a horribly frightening, unnerving experience. And the reason that he came was strictly to open up this portal for me to the other side and allow these experiences to begin to come through in my life and then to also activate my psychic gift. And that was why he came. That was his purpose in coming, and that was what he did. Since that time, I have never been afraid since of any any paranormal experience I've had ever. That was the only time in my life I've ever been frightened, and since then I've never had any experience that's frightened me. I've been startled if I turn around in the house and I know the house is locked up and I'm home by myself and there's somebody standing there. Of course I'm startled, but then they disappear and I go, Oh, okay. That was how the portal opened up to the physical paranormal manifestations I began to experience. And I began to experience them as a child when I was, you know, five years old. And then around between five and six, the way I discovered my psychic gift that I could read people's minds, predict their futures, give insights into their lives and all this. The way I discovered that, I was outside playing with a toy, 
this car pulled into the driveway that I, I didn't recognize. I didn't recognize the car and didn't recognize the people in it. It was a man and a woman. So I ran inside and got my mom and dad and I said, hey, somebody's just pulling the driveway and I don't know who it is. So they said, okay, we'll come out and see. So they walked out with me and it was friends of theirs that I didn't know. I'm standing out there and mom and dad are talking to the people. So I'm standing there and I'm, I'm uh, just listening. And all of a sudden I get this vision and I just break in on their conversation. And I said, you people just went on vacation. And I said, you took that car, the one that's sitting in the driveway, you drove that car on vacation. You don't have your kids with you now, but you took kids with you. You took two kids with you on vacation. And you stayed at this this hotel or motel that had a couple of stories or three stories, whatever it was. And it was painted white and it looked like this. And there were these trees, these certain trees planted in front along the length of it. And the back, the pool area was like this and a blue pool. And there were white chairs around the pool. And the guy's looking at me and just kind of grinning lopsided, like, what in the world? And the woman, his wife, I'll never forget the look on her face. Her jaw dropped open. Her eyes bugged out. And she stared at me the whole time I was talking like I had cobras coming out of my nose. (laughs) My dad was like, John, hush. And I just kept talking. I just kept going on. And this lady looked at my mother and looked at my father and looked at her husband, looked back at me and her jaw still dropped. Her eyes are still bugged out. And she said, how the hell could he possibly know this? And my parents kind of looked at each other confused. And she she said, how the hell could he possibly have known this? And they were like, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, that's what we came to tell you. We have just gone on vacation. We took that car. We took our two kids. We stayed at this place that looked exactly like John described down to the pool area. How in the hell could he possibly have known this? And that's what they were coming to tell my parents was about this vacation they had just taken. So my mother said something like, oh, well, you know, kids and their imaginations trying to smooth everything over, pass everything <laughs> off. And she goes, the kid's imagination doesn't account for this. That's exactly what happened. How the hell could he know this? <laughs> Mom was like, John, shut up and go play. And I was like, yes, ma'am. Nice to meet you guys. And I went off through the backyard with my toy and they went in the house with mom. And so I guess the impression I made on them was not too good with that psychic revelation because they never came to visit again. It was like (laughs) spooky little bastard. I'm not going back there. So that was how I discovered my psychic gift that I could see into people's lives. I could make predictions for their futures that actually happened. Sometimes I could tell what their thoughts were, what their emotions were, what they've been going through. And so all of that stemmed the experience of the paranormal manifestations that began and the awakening of my psychic gift that all occurred due to that, the old black gentleman that came in and scared the life out of me. And, you know, sorry, I got to do this to you, kid, but this is going to be valuable to some folks someday. Here's your gift. Here's the portal. We're opening it tonight. This is how we do it. (laughs) Yeah, man, there's so many questions just from that little bit. First thing that popped in my mind when you said that he was wearing a flannel shirt, have you ever heard about the flannel man? No. It is like a reoccurring thing in the paranormal and the cryptid community about a a flannel man that shows up. I don't know much about it. I actually want to do a podcast about it with somebody who's more of an expert on it, but I almost want to compare notes. And the other thing is, how did you know that that guy that came when you were five years old Mm -hmm. opened a portal for you 
how did you know that he was the one who started it all? And, and it, it all started after his appearance and I immediately connected it. It was like, Oh, okay. This, this guy came to do that. He was the one that activated that. He was the one that made it happen. And then as I grew in my psychic gift and I grew in the experiences, it was an even more reinforced knowing that, oh, okay, this this was the guy that came to facilitate all of this. And why do you think you've not been afraid since that first awakening with that flannel man? I'm calling him flannel man. <laughs> the flannel man. Because, you know, I've talked to so many people who have mm-hmm. had awakenings at early right. ages like you, and they are still afraid. They yeah. still get scared. And it yeah. does seem like you have a different relationship with the paranormal than some other people I've spoken with. I do. It's a, it's a very, very comfortable relationship. Over the years, like I told my wife one day, I said, I would not know how to live in this world if I didn't have my gift and my experiences. I, I wouldn't know how to live. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd probably be out on the street on a in a cardboard box or something, you know, because it's something that I rely on not only to guide and to help others, but to guide and help myself. I affectionately call them the guys, the people on the other side. That's my (laughs) umbrella term for my guides, my spirit entities, my friends, my deceased loved ones, my deceased friends, whatever other spirits there are that hang around me. I just lump them all together and I call them the guys. And the guys have literally saved my life, physically saved my life many times. They have guided me into situations where I needed to know things or see things. They revealed knowledge to me that I needed to know for my own benefit. And of course, they've enabled me to read professionally for like 50 years now. It'll be 50 years next year for a worldwide clientele. I've read for thousands and thousands of people in worldwide in over 40 countries, which just blows my mind. Helped a lot of people. I've gotten just tons of positive feedback over the years about the way that I've been able to help people and improve their lives and and give them things that they were able to utilize to make their lives better, to live better, to, to be healed. Just a ton of wonderful things. So the relationship to me is a very sacred one, an intimate one, a happy one, very fulfilling one. I try and get other people to understand how to overcome their fear about the paranormal. And most of that fear comes from You're a young child, you see a scary movie that plants itself in your subconscious, and then if you have a ghostly experience, oh my God, the default is to the scary movie in your mind. Or you've got a religious upbringing, say a Christian religious upbringing, the Bible says everything that happens that's not sanctioned by the church in the Bible is demonic of the devil, satanic or whatever, and so a paranormal occurrence happens and people automatically default to their religious upbringing. Oh my God, it's got to be evil, so therefore it's scary. And I remember when I was shooting the TV pilot for the History Channel, we were at this one place and this woman was there, one of the docents that was there. She said, between breaks and filming, she says, when you stop, she said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. So we took a little break in the filming and we went into a a separate room in the house there. And she said, a ghost tried to kill me. I said, oh, Bloney, no ghost tried to kill you. And she said, yes, yes, this ghost tried to kill me. She said, I was standing in my kitchen And she said, from across the kitchen in this cupboard where my plates are, this door flew open, this plate flew out, sailed across the kitchen, hit the wall beside me with such force that it shattered and fell to the floor. This ghost tried to kill me. 
I said, number one, if the ghost tried to kill you, you'd be dead. Okay. If the ghost has got that good of an aim and that much force, you'd be dead. <laughs> I said, second, what you have to understand about this. And I said, I'm picking up on this psychically now, so I can tell you exactly what's happened. I said, the other side has been trying to get through to you for a long time now. They have sp some specific guidance they want to help you with. They want to activate your intuition. They want to give you some signs and things to help you better your life. And they've been trying to get through to you, and you've basically been ignoring them through fear or through just basic ignorance or whatever. And I said, think of it this way. When spirit tries to get through to us for so long and we keep ignoring it, they're going to up their game a little bit. And I said, here's the analogy I'll give you. If you're going shopping with your small child and she's dress shopping and the eight-year-old boy is bored to tears. And so he's one of these kids. Hey, mom, mom, mom. Hey, mom, mom. And mom's ignoring him looking at the dress rack. Right. And he says, OK, that's not working. He looks around and he sees a chair there and he tips that over. Kabam. What are you doing? Now he's got mom's attention which is what he wanted in the first place. So I said, basically, the other side can act that way, too. You know, they've been trying to get your attention. You've been ignoring them. Finally, it's like, ignore this. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you can't ignore this. <laughs> yeah. And I said, they're not trying to hurt you. They're just trying to get your attention. And so what I try and do to people, for people, is to explain circumstances in that way so that they can understand it, so that they become less afraid of the other side and then um, can utilize that connection to live a better life. And uh, another funny incident that I was able to help somebody out where they were afraid, uh, they had watched this uh, quote-unquote world-famous psychic on TV, and the psychic had said, uh, if you want, uh, want a spirit in your house, just ask for one. Just ask for a ghost to come to you. They'll come to you. Oh, God. So she said, I thought that was pretty cool. So I did, <laughs> and I got a ghost. And I was scared to death of it. And I didn't know what to do with it. It did all kinds of things. And it moved things around my house. And it made all kinds of noise and everything else. And she said, I asked it to leave me alone. It wouldn't go away. So I moved. I up and ran and tried to get rid of the ghost, leave it behind. And it followed me. And it moved with me. And she said, where I moved to, <laughs> the neighbors, um, it, would, it was upset with me. And it would go outside and run up and down the street, setting off all the car alarms in sequence one after the other. And so she said it got the police called on me because the neighbors were like, this has never happened before till this woman <laughs> moved in. So she's got to be doing this somehow. So the police came out to my house, she says. And she said, I'm standing at the front door talking with the police who are standing on my porch. And while we're talking, thank God, all the car alarms went off up and down the street. And they know I'm not doing it because they're standing there talking with me. <laughs> I can't have anything to do with it. And she said the cops just looked at each other and looked at me and went, okay, we don't know what it is, but it ain't you. You're clear. We're gone. And, <laughs> and they left. All the car alarms are still blaring. So I said, okay, here's what you do. I said, uh, you see this, this stray dog out here on the street, and you whistle for it and call you to it, and it comes and you take it home. That's what you asked for. <laughs> so now you want to get rid of it. You don't like it. You're scared of it. What? So I said, that's what you did with the ghost. You said, hey, somebody on the other side. I'd, I'd like to have somebody on the other side come and visit me and stay with me. Well, you got it. And then you didn't want it. And that insulted it. And I said, now you try and move and leave it behind. It's like, now you abandon me. <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> My gosh, set off these car alarms. So I said, here's what you do. 
And I said, you talk to this ghost and you say, look, I'm sorry that I asked for you and then I disrespected you and that I tried to leave you behind and abandon you. And I'm sorry I've been afraid of you. You've got my attention. You're welcome here. You can stay here. Don't scare me. Don't startle me if you can help it. But, you know, uh, give me some guidance. Give me some help. And I said, look, while you're here, watch over me and watch over the house. Protect the house. Protect me. And if I have to go somewhere and you're here, watch over the house while I'm gone. Keep it safe. I said, do that. This ghost, this spirit will work with you and you'll overcome this fear and you'll be okay. And you'll find you have a nice companion in spirit. So sure enough, down the road that that worked out that way. I always try and get people to understand, you know, look, there's seldom ever reason to be scared of anything from the other side. It's not to say that all is roses and light out there because it's not. I mean, we have horribly evil people here on earth and to extrapolate that into the spiritual realm, there has to be some there too. But I have never encountered the Hollywood version of the exorcist demon. You know, I don't see a demon behind every bush when I go on paranormal investigations. <laughs> I've never encountered that type of manifestation. I've encountered a lot of people that are ill-informed or jump at their own shadow or misinterpret everything they experience. Or they read a book by some supposed authority that or demonologist or psychic that everything you do is a demon and demons are coming for you constantly and everything. And. And so they're scared to death, like, you know, that way. All of my experiences have been pleasant experiences for the most part and uh, very interesting and very helpful experiences. And I think that you have to have a certain metal. If you're going to be a paranormal investigator, it's like the ghost shows where they go on these investigations. They provoke the ghost and ask it to do something it does. And then they scream and jump and run. It's like, well, that's what you're there for, doofus, you know? <laughs> so I think that you have to realize that when you're encountering things in a paranormal investigation, you may encounter energies or spiritual replays or a spirit itself that was wronged or murdered or has an aggrievement or whatever. And that can be interpreted as a very negative energy. And you have to be able to handle that without fear and to be able to connect with that entity and, you know, what's going on? Is there any way I can help you? Do you just need your story told? What's going on? So I think there's a lot of people who get involved in, in the paranormal in that respect that shouldn't. Plumbers by day, paranormal investigators by night. It's like, come on, man. You know? Well, I think that's the fear factor, too, that the media, do, I think, does a, a general disservice to people in regards to the paranormal and it's kind of like you have to rewire your brain. Almost yeah. all the movies about ghosts depict them in a negative light. It, it can be difficult for people. It, it can definitely be a challenge. The, the producer of my TV show, he was a total skeptic when we did the, uh, the pilot, when we shot the pilot. At the time, it was popular to do that. So the History Channel was jumping on that bandwagon a lot. And Atlas Media, who he was working for at the time, contacted me to uh, to do the show and the only reason i did it it was popular and so well let's let's find us a psychic and let's shoot a, a series he was he didn't believe he didn't believe at all he was just doing it because it was popular and so my goal during the the pilot shoot was to make everybody on the crew a believer and i did <laughs> and it was a really great thing since then, like, you know, like my producer, we became friends and he would call me periodically and ask me about things. He would go, oh, my God, you're so psychic. But I would do things with him like while we were doing the shoot. And by the way, if anybody thinks TV is glamorous, it's not. It's hideous hard work. <laughs> we, yes. our, our filming was minimum 12 hours a day and yeah. ran sometimes 16, 18 hours a day. 
just nonstop and just get up in the morning. Casting call was at six. There you went and you were lucky if you were through at 6 p.m. Usually we'd go to nine or 10 at night, sometimes 11 and then sleep, get up and do it all over again. It was grueling. It wasn't there was nothing glamorous about it at all. While going from one location to the other, I made it my mission to do things to convince them of the reality of the paranormal and that that could then be applied in practical, helpful ways. And fortunately, the pilot didn't there. I don't know why. Sometimes that seems to be common in the in the entertainment world. But I have my theories, too. But for some reason, never aired. And I was so disappointed because I saw the fine cut of the pilot that uh, that never aired. And we would have blown away any show on TV today. It was really that good of quality. And we didn't do the silly, scary, goofy stuff. Everything had a purpose and a meaning and a mission and was presented in a dignified way. And it was very, very realistic. And we included in the pilot some of the physical paranormal manifestations that we caught on camera. It was just top notch. It was just superb. And it just broke my heart when it didn't go to uh, didn't go to series, didn't air. Yeah, I'm sad that (laughs) I didn't get to see that. I'm sure. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, right? Because you can't you can see it, but you can't share it with anyone because that's a bummer. There's a few things you said I want to go back to. One is I hear you about the psychic world. I interview a lot of psychics. The more that I do the show, the more I actually feel like a skeptic in a way because yes. I'm yes. learning more about yep. I'm just learning so much about humans more than I yep. am learning about the paranormal, which is fascinating. Yep. And I want to know with you, you said you you also went through everything with a fine tooth comb. You wanted to find yep. the charlatans and you want you were like, right. this is bullshit. This is bullshit. Exactly. What is your method? How do you do you connect with source? Do you I mean, is, does it just come naturally? How, wh- what's your technique? Well, it does come naturally, but it's something I've worked on. And I guess the best way to try and describe the way that I've worked on it is to say, okay, if I do this, does that make the reception better or worse? Does it make things more accurate or less accurate? Do I, do I get closer to the other side or less so? And that was something that I developed through my teenage years coming up. And by the time I was into my 20s and 30s, it was just almost automatic. It was just almost second nature. And I think a lot of that is that the more I opened up to the guys on the other side, the more they opened up to me and provided to me. And when they saw two things, that it didn't scare me, number one, and that they could trust me with it, number two. Because I, I it was an interviewer said to me one time, said, you know, having that much psychic power when you're a kid, that's like giving a an eight year old a chainsaw and gas and going, here you go, you know. And I said, well, yeah, it, that's true. You have to be responsible. You have to be ethical. You have to be moral. And one of the really great things I can say about my life is that, however, I've screwed up otherwise because I am a normal human being like everybody else. You know, I'm not God. I'm not perfect. I have my faults and my quirks and my idiosyncrasies, just like anybody else does. But that's never bled over into my psychic work. And I have never taken advantage of or abused or taken for granted my psychic work or my gift. And I have never, ever taken advantage of or abused clients. And uh, there's been there's been people I've turned away from reading this. You don't need a reading. You <laughs> there have been people that have paid me, and I've called them up and I said, I just refunded your money. You don't need a reading. You've got one <laughs> question you need answered, and this is it. <laughs> and they were like, Well, yeah. And I said, Okay, that's it. Go with that right now. That's all you need. You don't need a reading. Save your money. 
So, uh, and my old ladies always tell me, so you're going to be broke doing that. And I said, yeah, but I sleep good at night. You know? That's right. <laughs> That's like, right. There, and there are a lot of phonies out there. There's a lot of phonies. And you're right. Everybody now is a psychic. Oh, I bought a deck of tarot cards and I read the little book that come with it. I'm a tarot card reader. Or, oh, I read this book on mediumship. Now I'm a medium. It's like, oh, my God. We don't master anything. There's no such thing as a master. You know, I get so disgusted with that. Oh, this master artist. You don't ever master painting. I'm a painter. I'm an artist myself. You don't master anything. A really good musician. You take Eric Clapton or somebody like that. They'll tell you, yeah, there's times I'm on stage and I hit the wrong damn note. And people probably don't know it, but I know it. You know, I screwed up and I just kind of do a little riff and try and cover it or whatever. You don't master anything. People that have this ego about them that, oh, you know, I've, I've evolved and done this stuff and I'm this super accurate, blah, blah, and all this and all that. And it's like, no, 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 no. It doesn't happen that way. You know, I work at it continuously in spite of all these years of experience to, to keep that connection and to try and to grow more and to grow further. That's the whole point of it. We went and saw John Edward and he does have a genuine gift. I can tell you that he, he actually does have a genuine gift. But what torqued me off about a lot of these famous people, when Sylvia Brown was alive, mm -hmm. she charged $850 for a reading. And I had several of her clients call me that had had readings with her. And they told me, they said, we, we were clients of Sylvia's. We had readings with Sylvia. I said, oh, okay. So they would get readings with me. And so I said, well, you've had readings with Sylvia. And I want to know, you know, here's, here's my reading. How, how do you, oh, your reading was fantastic. It was accurate. It was insightful. I related everything you said. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold on to the predictions and I feel sure they'll hit and I'll see if they hit and all that. And I said, okay, well, great, great, great. Then the clients of hers began to tell me that when they went to her for readings, they said, I don't know who she is reading for, but it sure wasn't me. <laughs> and I had client after client tell me that that she said things that just didn't amount to a hill of beans I couldn't relate to, wasn't accurate, didn't make any sense. And so I told one of the clients one day, and she had told me before the reading, she said her husband had bought her a reading with Sylvia Brown. And part of that was that they went to this presentation, like a stage presentation, where she said in the audience and Sylvia came out and lectured. And then afterwards, she got a private reading with Sylvia. So her husband had prayed this enormous amount for this stuff because the, the audience participation thing, the, the stage appearance, that was in addition to the reading. So she, she said, now this is what she tells me. She said, this guy comes out before Sylvia appears on stage. And he said, now, we all have to stand up and give Sylvia a standing ovation right now. A lot of, a lot of noise, clapping, cheering. Everybody's got to stand before she even comes out or she might not come out. What? I'm like, you, yeah, I said, you have got to be kidding me. She said, well, that's stupid and sucks, but okay, whatever. We're here. We paid the money. So everybody stands up, claps, and we comes out, does a thing. She said, I wasn't impressed at all. And she said, well, maybe things will be better in the reading. And so she's another one that said, I went and got the, the reading personally from Sylvia. I'm sitting right across from her. And I'm like, lady, I don't know who you're reading for, but it sure ain't me. And I said, you know, that's a shame to pay $850 an hour for something like that. She goes, oh, honey. She said, the reading's not $850 an hour. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, that's that's what's on her website. It's $850. She goes, honey. She said, it's not $850 an hour. It's $850 a reading. The reading may last 10 minutes. <gasps> and then you're done. Yeah, uh, no, really? that's what she said. She said, your reading may be 10 or 15 minutes, and you're done. That's $850. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Next. 
And I was like, holy cow. At the time, John Edward was making the statement that he would never pay more for a, a reading or charge more for a reading than what he thought that he would want to pay for a reading. And then I'll be damned if after Sylvia Brown died, he didn't. I went to his website and looked. He jacked his up to 800, 850 bucks. Did he really? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of it's really driven by a lot of desperation and a lot of a lot of need and people like that take advantage of it. Well, I want to go back real quick to you did that first psychic reading for your parents' friends when you were 12, was it? Right. And then you, I believe, based on what we we spoke about earlier, you were already a professional psychic at like 18, right? At age 18, yeah. I had been reading for friends and family and for some strangers as well that got, got wind of my gift through my teenage years. And by the time I hit 18, I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do this professionally now. You know, I'm going to start because up to then I'd do it for free or just take donations or whatever. And it dawned on me, it's like, you know, and I tell people, I'm not charging you for the gift. I'm charging you for my time. If you want me to be available for this, I got to have some way to pay the grocery bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So that, that's when I started reading professionally at age 18. And there have been times, like I said in my book, I would work at other jobs full time. They said, well, how can you claim to have been a full time psychic since you were 18? Because I would get off of that job and come home at night and read for six, seven, eight hours for people get up and do the job and come home and then read for six, seven, eight hours for people. So, you know, I've, I've done that full time at a professional level, you know, professional defined as you're getting paid for it. And I've done that since I was 18 years old. And then several years, several decades ago now, I made the decision that that's all I'm going to do. That's that's I'm just going to read and that's all I'm going to do. And so that was uh, when I made the decision to do that and not do anything else at all. You're letting go of a sure source of income, that sure paycheck, you know, yeah. and you don't know how many clients you're going to have, but you know that paycheck's there, right? And so it's a little scary to let go of that and to do that, but it's it's been a good it's been a good ride. It's it's been a good trip. Yeah, I tend to I tend to believe psychics who have had early experiences with the paranormal more than ones who kind of just like came into it later in life. It's probably not foolproof. There are exceptions to that rule, but I do think that people who start reading just naturally for no money, it's just like here right. in my house. It's somebody, a love, yeah. It's it's a it, gift and a love and a calling and yeah. It's there, right? It's and there. I have a little bit of you know, a little radar that's kind of like, well, right. that's interesting. You know, if by the time you were 18, you were already spending such an extraordinary amount of time doing oh, those for like six years, because I started at about twelve. Yeah. And doing readings for about six years, you know, I did that. And and by the time I was 18, I had people that were driving 200 miles one way to get a reading with me. And I was like, okay, maybe I, I better kind of pay attention to this, you know. So yeah, that's when I made the decision to go that route. I love earlier you said you were saying the Seth thing is bullshit and the, the that channeling um, and pretty much all channeling you think is bullshit. Is that, is that a lot accurate? Of it, yeah. A lot of it, yeah. Do you, so you don't ever do any channeling. And and just to make sure we're on the same page, we're talking about like getting in some kind of trance state and allowing <laughs> something to come through you, right? Right. No, I, I don't do anything like that. You don't? And I get so so tickled at some of these people. Like I said, you know, when, when Seth inhabited Jane, 
why uh, all of a sudden uh, did she have to speak uh, like some old Pentecostal preacher? It's like, really? That's, that's your sign that you're channeling? It's like, how bizarre. And then I remember one time I saw this guy, he channeled dolphins. He channeled the intelligence of dolphins. And he would strip naked to the waist and sit on stage in a chair and go into his trance and screech. <laughs> like, I guess he told it was this dolphin language or something. And the first time that I saw this guy do that, I laughed till I thought I might die. I, thought <laughs> I would just choke and pass out. I laughed so hard. I couldn't stop laughing. I was like, oh, my God. And people paying him money for this nonsense. Oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah, I bet. And it's like I always tell people, I say, you know, look, I come in. And I give somebody something that's real, something that's verifiable, something that's practical. And I don't make that great a living in spite of that gift. You know, the entertainment wins out over everything every time. Yeah. Do right. you feel like, and I know you said you're not religious, right? No, used to be, but not not anymore. You know, we, I grew up religious. I grew up a Presbyterian. We grew up in church. My mother taught adult Sunday school. <laughs> and so you you went at that with a fine tooth comb as well and decided oh that yeah that, oh yeah, yeah and said you know what this don't work <laughs> so do you feel like then when you slough that off do you feel like you believe in inhuman entities that are like demons or or do you use that vernacular like what, what do you call those inhuman entities or do you believe in them or do you communicate with them i don't communicate with them. I don't have any real experience with them except one instance I can relate to you. And like I said, it's not all roses and candy on the other side. We know that. But I do believe there are these safeguards or fail-safes in place that keep a lot of that from, from impacting us. But I did have this one experience one time, and this is the only experiences I've, experience I've had like this. There was a, a friend of my wife's when we still lived up in New York, and we were in New York City on business, in Manhattan on business. And we were ending the day up, and we had this friend of ours with us, and he was he's on the other side now, and he was a little bit psychic, and he was blind. So we were walking along the street, and we stopped for this light, and we're waiting for the, the crosswalk signal. And this entity blew past us so powerfully that it literally, the wind was aroused and ruffled our clothing. That's how fast this invisible entity blew past us. And I looked at him and I said, did you feel that? He said, yeah, I felt that. He said, what do you think it is? I said, you go first. And he said, it's something malevolent somewhere going somewhere to do some mischief. And I said, that was exactly what I felt and what I picked up. And it was not like a general malevolence, like, oh, let's get this blind guy and this guy here. You know, let's do something to them. It was a very specific mission that this thing had. It was on the way to do something very specific. And it was not pleasant. You know, it was it was the spiritual equivalent of the mafia knee breaker that, you know, hey, you hadn't paid your gambling debt. I'm coming for you with a baseball bat. It was the spiritual equivalent of that. So I don't know what it was on the way to do or to whom or to what, but it was definitely not something you wanted to mess with. In New York City, huh? Yeah. Interesting yeah. place for it to show up, but just in such a crowded area. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I mean, it went by us. Literally, our clothing rippled from the wind that it created when it went by. That's weird. Yeah. Wow. 
you don't work with demons. Do you believe in demons? What do you think about that? I don't really you know. The the word demon actually used to mean like an angel, you know, yeah. from way back. And when they talked about a demon of this or a demon of that, it was like a, a muse or an angel or whatever. That was how it, it was originally interpreted a long time ago. And now you've got demonologists and everything's a demon and everybody's a demon and demons this. And that. I just I just don't see. I don't believe it. I don't think that it's that it's there. I mean, I don't believe in these possessions that people go on about. I don't believe in exorcisms. I've never seen an exorcism that I thought was legitimate. I've never really? seen a possession case that I thought was legitimate. And then the problem is, in a lot of this stuff, our minds, even among the dullest of us, and by dullest, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean non-creative. Even among the dullest of us, our minds are still incredibly inventive. Mm-hmm. And we're very suggestible. We're very susceptible. And we can talk ourselves into feeling that we're experiencing this thing, that thing, or the other thing, or whatever, you know, when that's absolutely not the case. So I've, I've never experienced anything that I would really call like a possession or a, you know, a demon or anything like that. I just, it hasn't come up in all these years that I've done this. It's interesting because your take on being a psychic is, it's just so different than anybody I've ever spoken with because there's yeah. always this element that we get to about inhuman entities and demons. Right. And it does seem that there's a darker aspect to it. And everything about you seems very optimistic and positive. Experiences I've had have been, for the most part, positive ones. There have been some startling ones. There have been some that I, I couldn't quite figure out or whatever, but nothing that ever scared me. And nothing that ever made me feel afraid for my well-being or anyone else's well-being around me. I always worry about the so-called psychics or paranormal investigators that everything they encounter is demonic and everything they encounter is sinister. And it's like, no, that makes good TV, but that's not real life. Yeah. You know, and uh, I have talked to some of the on-air talent on some of the big shows. Mm-hmm. And I have talked to some of the production people on some of the big paranormal shows, and they have all told me that a lot of the stuff is made up, that a lot of it's faked, that a lot of it's outright lies, that some of it is the producer will say, hey, hey, can you cry or can you scream and like run out of the room or do something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, so so a lot of it's just faked bullshit. And mm-hmm. I hate that with a passion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's what I like about you. Everything that somebody tells me, I tend to question and I tend to want to validate and I tend to want to document, you know, is this really true? Is this really happening? Does it really occur? And if it doesn't, let's get rid of it because it's it's false. It doesn't do us any good. It doesn't help us. If it does and we don't immediately understand the whys and wherefores, let's investigate it the best we can and try and discover a better way to communicate with it. Like EVP, for example, electronic voice phenomena. I'm experimenting more and more with that now. And I'm like, okay, the best communication comes from some type of noise. The spirits on the other side are using noise to communicate. But why? Why do they use noise? How do they use noise? And what can we learn from that to communicate with the other side better through ITC, EVP, Instrumental Transcommunication Electronic Voice Phenomenon? I was wondering the other day, I thought, okay, now when I record these voices, I don't hear them with my ears. Right. But the recorder picks it up and you play it back and you can hear it clear as a bell. You know, I get a lot of class A voices. 
what they call class A voices that are like crystal clear. You don't have to do noise reduction. You don't have to do anything. They're just there. You hear them. It's like, okay, what is the mechanism that they use noise to speak? And I can't hear them, but my recorder can. Now, somewhere down the road, some researchers are going to think of that and go, ah, I have to find out what frequency that recorder is picking up and what frequency they're talking on. And when we do that, I'm going to build this machine and we'll just be able to sit down and have a two-way conversation like a telephone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, that's a ways off. Or is Communicating, it? Or is it? Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's close. I hope it's close. But, you know, the uh, communication with the other side can be very difficult. And getting things from the other side can be very difficult. And the, the what I liken that to is that when I was a kid, when I was a, a teenager, we met this guy, me and some friends met this guy who was a ham radio operator. So we would sit in West Texas and on a good night, we would talk to somebody in Australia and it sounded like they were in the same room with us. And we would sit there and hold a 15 or 20 minute conversation, clear as a bell. And then the next night, he could barely raise somebody across town. You know, the conditions were just that lousy. And what made the conditions right and what weren't. And we never knew. Nobody ever figured that out. And so it kind of seems to be the same way in communication with the other side. You know, sometimes you get these, bam, marvelous, powerful, incredible, meaningful, evidential communications, and they last and they last and they last. And other times it's it's hard to get any type of manifestation at all. And why is that? It's like sometimes you set all the right conditions to get like an EVP, for example, and you record for half an hour and you get nothing. And other days you're sitting there and you're having a drink and you say, oh, I'll turn on the recorder and you get, you know, two, three, four voices or whatever. It's like, why? So there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we have to figure out. It takes serious dedication, serious research. And one of the problems that we have, when I was on uh, Coast to Coast, I am with George Norrie. This guy heard me. And he contacted me, emailed me, and we've become friends since. And he was at Stanford when Stanford developed the Stanford Research Institute, where they did all the paranormal work with Targ and Putoff and Uri Geller, all, all these people. And he knew a lot of those people. When now he did not work at the Institute, he worked at Stanford, but he did not work at the Institute, but he did some of his own psychic and paranormal investigation and stuff. And he told me the story that Finn, to this day, it blows my hair back. And being a photographer, I'm a professional photographer as well as a painter. So I immediately understood what he was talking about. And I'll give you the the background to it. One of the challenges you're given when you study photography, the lesson that you're you're given is you're on a busy Manhattan, you know, New York City street, and you want to take a picture of this building during the main part of the day when there's an IG and people walking the sidewalk, but you don't want any people in that picture. And you can't use software and edit them out afterwards. How do you do it? Well, you use a long shutter speed. And what happens is that the building doesn't move, so the camera registers it. But the long shutter speed is too slow for the people walking through for it to pick them up. So they just disappear. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the background of that. So he's telling me that he said there was a lot of alphabet agency money floating around SRI and and a lot of things going on. And of course, we know about our government's remote viewing program and everything. Mm-hmm. And he said one time, one of the uh, the people involved in that brought him or that he saw this uh, experiment that they had done. And they gave this remote viewer coordinates. And the guy was sent out somewhere and he was sitting on a bench by these train tracks. And there were these other things around. So uh, the remote viewer had drawn the picture of this guy sitting on a bench by these train tracks. 
and whatever else was around there. And he said, look at that. He said, man, this is a success. And my friend looked at him and said, where's the train? And the guy says, what do you mean? And he said, well, for the guy to be sitting there, you know, I think it was maybe like a commuter train or something. And he said, for the guy to be sitting there long enough for the remote viewer to pick him up and to get this as accurately, where's the train? The train had to go by at least once during this. Why didn't the remote viewer get the train? Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, well, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. It was a success. We got the target. And he goes, yeah, but listen. He said, what if your remote viewer is a camera and he's got slow speed film in him and he's on a long shutter setting? The subject doesn't move, so naturally he's going to get that. But anything that comes by in motion, he's not going to pick up. And he says, I'm not following you. And he said, well, look, what if you take your remote viewer and train him to be using a fast film and a fast shutter speed. And boom, the next time he remote views that, he gets the train as it goes by too. And the guy's like, and I just, it just, when he told me that, I was like, my God, I still haven't recovered from it. It just blew my hair back. I was like, my God, what an insight. And he said, the guy was like, man, it doesn't matter. We got our, it's a bit of success. We got our target, you know, and that was it. So I think a lot of that type of thinking inhibits our research into mm-hmm. psychic things, paranormal thing, you know, well, we got our, we got our thing. We got what we needed, you know, go away with you. <laughs> you know? And if we would just open up to the possibility of so much more being there that we could develop and that we could get out, uh, you know, who knows what we could do. We could go you know? so much farther. Science is not caught up to the paranormal and you get a le- good legitimate psychic or shaman or whatever in there. And that's when you're going to begin to see some results. And yeah, try and measure it with your instruments or do whatever. But the instruments are secondary. The science is secondary to the spiritual thing itself. If you're trying to prove this by science, you're going about it wrong. Mm. You know, because science is so far removed. Science hasn't caught up with anything yet. And it's like with EVP, you know, it's neat. I'm developing a page now for the EVPs I've got. Some of them are, are so amazingly clear and so fantastic. but to me, it's still a regression because I hold two-way conversations with these spirits in my head. You know, I, I don't need to hear their voice on, on tape. I can do that other ways. And my TV producer, we became friends and we continued to work on projects for trying to get future television shows on the air. And he was like, do some EVP recordings. And I said, why? I said, that's a regression to me because I hold two-way conversations, long conversations with spirits in my head that are accurate and verifiable and we can validate them. And EVP, you may get one word and that's it, you know, or maybe two or three words. And I said, why would I do that? And he said, because the TV viewer can't hear inside your head, but they can hear those two or three words on the tape and go, oh, look at that. So, yeah. So that made sense to me. But but like I say, you know, a good psychic is still when I tell people that I'm taking the most sensitive, reliable instrument that we have available today out into the field with me to research I'm taking myself. Mm-hmm. That's very Buddhist <laughs> of you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one of the my favorite teachings of Buddhism is that you you find the truth in yourself. And then once you find it, you don't go bug everybody else about it and say, hey, Mother Effer, you have to believe in this truth that right, I found. Right. You just have it for yourself and you live that and you continue to investigate for the rest of your life and the next exactly. life and the next life, if that's what you believe. Right. And you seem to do that. You know, you said you went to go see John Edward. 
Right. The Teresa Caputo. Yeah. yeah. The Long Island Medium. It seems like you're going to just go see for yourself. Does it exactly. seem legit? Does it feel authentic? Yeah. Does it work? Does you it know? work? That's, yeah. That has to be the bottom line in all this stuff is does it work? Because if you're making statements about spiritual or religious beliefs or techniques that you allege impact the, the physical realm somehow, then there has to be physical evidence of that. Right. Otherwise, you've got fairy tales, you right. know, write them in a book and put them out there on the bookshelf with everybody else's. And, and that's all you've got. Like in my books, you know, the experiences that I relate actually physically happened, actually manifested. And a lot of times other people witnessed them or participated in them or saw the results of them. So it's like the the things that when I say I've had over a thousand manifestations, physical paranormal manifestations, these are not things that I meditated, envisioned, dreamed, channeled or whatever. These are things that actually happen on the physical realm. And other people saw them a lot of the time. Like I said, we captured them on audio and video recordings, took pictures of them. And so we have that physical evidence that, yes, that's there. Since you've done so much investigation, have you ever seen somebody witness with your own eyeballs telekinesis, somebody moving something with their mind? I've done that. You've done that? With, several times. Several with, times. Well, I started experimenting once with decades ago. I took a liquid-filled magnetic compass, you know, like a regular compass you get for using on maps or whatever. Mm -hmm. The first thing I thought I would do is see if I could deflect the needle. And I managed to do that. And then I managed to get the needle to stay deflected. Like if it was pointing north, I could deflect it to the west and make it stay there. And then I developed to the point that I could put my finger on the glass and make the needle jump up to my finger. And I could just spin it around, around, around inside the glass. And it would stay connected to my finger for as long as I wanted to. Here just the other day, my wife's boy and his girlfriend were over. And we were talking about doing telekinesis and things. And a salt shaker moved on the table by itself. Everybody saw it, things like that. So, yeah, I've, I've done that and practiced that for a long time. I don't put as much energy into it as I probably should. It takes a lot of effort for me. It, it takes a lot of energy. But, yeah, I've, I've been able to physically affect things. I remember one time, and I did this actually without any study at all one day. Uh, we were in, in grade school, I guess maybe fourth, fifth grade, something somewhere around in there. And we were out playing dodgeball. Remember those old red rubber balls? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you play dodgeball with and the kickball and stuff. The smell of those, I can still smell them today. One of the kids was out there. There was no wind. And uh, one of the kids had thrown one of these up in the air, kind of in a big arc coming down on the other side towards this other kid. But it wasn't like straight at him or in a low arc. It was in a pretty high arc. And I just felt this energy come over me. And I looked at that ball and I threw my hands up at it and willed it to deflect. And it stopped in midair and went backward and fell down to the ground. And there were other kids that saw it. And this one kid said, what did you do? I said, I made the ball go away. And he said, how did you do that? And other kids were like, wow. And, and it was really funny because the one reaction from that one kid was like, you saw him do it. Other kids were starting to deny it already, even though they had seen it. Mm -hmm. He was like, you saw him. It was coming over here and he stopped. He put his hands up and it stopped midair and it went back. You saw it. And they were like, no, no, no. I didn't see anything. Yeah, they had seen it. You know, their eyes were bugging out. They were freaking out. 
So I had discovered way back then, okay, yeah, it's, it is possible to physically affect things. You know, that does continue. And I, I don't put a lot of effort into it because for me, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy to do that. But it's something I kind of want to experiment with more. One of the things I've done has been very successful in transmitting energy to people and to use it for healing. One of the more dramatic examples, this buddy of mine and I, we uh, had this favorite bar that we went to. And we knew everybody there. And a lot of the waiters and waitresses were college age kids that were, you know, working, working their way through college, come in at night. And we were friends with just about all of them. Well, I remember this one girl, we were sitting there at the bar and she come in for her shift and she plopped down by us and she said, my God, look at my lip. And we looked and she had this cold sore, this fever blister that had just started. And it was like the size of a goiter. It was like, (laughs) it was like hideous and she said look at me i'm a monster she said it's like a goiter we were laughing we said yeah it is when a fever blister first starts even if you take medication it's like a week to two weeks before it goes away right Mm -hmm. and usually leaves a little scar a little you know something for a while so this thing had just started she just (laughs) got it and it was monster hey i said can can i do something she goes what i said let me let me zap some energy into that she said what do you mean i said just just let me do this you know okay so I put my finger about half an inch away from it and started willing energy into it. Now this is in this crowded restaurant, this crowded bar, and I'm like, I don't care. I'm gonna, I'm gonna zap this thing. So I did this, and I said, Did you feel anything? She said, Yeah, I got hot and kind of tingled. She said, What did you do? I said, Oh, it's an old Indian trick I learned. That's all I told her. I said, And she said, Well, it, it did something. And I said, Okay, well, I'm glad. And we went about our drinking. She went on about her business. So the very next day, me and my buddy are in there again. She comes in for her shift, comes running up to the bar, and she goes, my God, look at my lip. And it was absolutely, totally, completely smooth, healed, not a mark, nothing. Get out of here. Yeah. My buddy looked at me and he goes, that's some weird shit, John. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you right now, somebody who's had cold sores, like they they don't just go away like that. Like you right, said, they, right. they linger and they, yep. they don't just... Yeah, that's yeah. that's impressive. I've been able to do things like that for people. And then going back again to, you know, not being able to help myself too much. I was getting around on a cane and I was taking the city bus. And there was this guy that had just had back surgery. And he would get on the bus with this full upper torso brace and his cane and hobble around. And, and we kind of developed a friendship. We'd talk. And when he got on the bus, he'd come sit in front of me and or I'd go and sit behind him and he'd turn around, we'd talk. And when the bus started, I would put my hands up behind his his seat, the bus seat, but the seat back as close to his lower back as I could, and I would start transmitting healing energy to him. So I did that for about a week and uh, we he the bus stopped for him. He was getting on, he didn't have his brace on, he was still using his cane a little bit, but he gets on real spry. And the bus driver looks at him and says, Look at you. What the heck happened, man? And he says, I don't know. He said, my doctor told me that he has never seen anybody heal this quick and all the back surgeries he's done forever. Nobody's ever had this response or heal like this. He doesn't know what's going on. And I was just laughing. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> so I would, I would sit in front of me and I'd keep sending healing energy into him. I, I don't really consider myself a natural healer. It's something that, you know, I, I kind of really have to work on more to do. And I think there are people out there that are, are probably natural healers that are probably a lot better than I am. 
that can do it, but they either haven't connected with that gift or they don't want to connect with that gift. Or, well, for example, my wife, she's pretty good at it, but she's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, full time? I'm seeing sick people all day and sending out all this energy. I don't want to do it. So, well, know. John, you're either an incredible storyteller or an incredible psychic or both. There you and go. That's what it is. Because yeah. you, your yeah. stories are just very, very compelling. I so deeply want to believe you. And I think a, a part of me does, but then yeah, there's well, always they're all a, true. They're all true. Yeah. And, but there's uh, also, you know, the skeptic in me is like, oh, I want to, I want to see the, I want to yeah. see it real time. You know, yeah. I, like I said, I'm not usually like that. I think yeah. I, I've become that way after I started doing more investigation. Oh, like, absolutely. Well, that was the way I was, you know, like I said, growing up and I started investigating all this stuff in religion and in the paranormal and in the psychic realm. And I was like, man, there's way too much bullshit out here. You know, yeah, you got to like wade through it. You do. You do. And so that's why I tell people, I say, look, we need something that works. That's practical. We need compassion. We need empathy towards each other. We need to work toward healing for ourselves individually, for the planet, as a race. It's hard to get people to do that. We're tribal by nature. We are. What's it like for your wife to be with a psychic who's constantly <laughs> cultivating his psychic skills and investigating them? It. It irks her sometimes and it helps her sometimes. And I think she's kind of like anybody else. Uh, I'll, I'll tell her something. That's not what I wanted to hear. You know? <laughs> and it may be the truth, but not what she wanted to hear. Like some of my clients, I've had some of my clients tell me, I believe you, but that sure ain't what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I think it's, it's a little bit of that. She says she's not scared of the paranormal, but there have been instances, things that have happened that have rattled her, that have scared her. That's that's kind of our relationship. <laughs> do you do impromptu readings for her, you know, or do you have like a certain time where you're allowed to? And she's like, no more readings. It's it's time yeah, for the reading yeah, free night. Kind of, she'll she'll take what she wants to hear yeah. <laughs> and yeah. leave the rest. But <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. funny. That's interesting. That dynamic, you know, like oh, I it is. Yeah, just she met you, and did, did you? When you met her, did you immediately come out and say, hey, listen, I'm a psychic? Well, she knew I was before we even met physically. She had friends that were psychics. Okay. So, so she was open she to had, it. Yeah. So she was open to it and she had had some paranormal experiences and everything. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, her baptism of fire meeting me. She was already kind, <laughs> yeah. of, kind of already indoctrinated. You know, we, we had that foundation to build on. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course... When I came along, I always tell people, I said, don't hang around me if you don't want paranormal experiences because you're going to get them. Of course, when when I you know came to live with her, all of my guys, all my retinue came with me and all the experiences continued, you know, fast and furious and heavy. And that introduced her to a whole new level of paranormal manifestation and experiences. In. These past couple of years have been complicated and different because of the pandemic. Do you feel like the pandemic caused an increase in paranormal energy? And if so, what kind and how often? I think if anything, it kind of put a damper on things. Really? Yeah. Really? Interesting. I think that, you know, people became so cloistered and so fearful and so self-focused. They closed the churches down, wouldn't let people congregate and, 
wouldn't let spiritual gatherings occur and things like that. And I think that that hampered rather than helped spiritual connection. It's a very dystopian way to live. We're not meant to live that way. We're social creatures. And to, to force people into that type of lifestyle is, is very destructive. And I think it shut a lot of people down and, and that actually turns people away from the spiritual realm. And I think that people don't understand, I think, prayer and spirituality and spiritual working. It's like if people were stuck at home and they're praying, you know, God in this mess and, and get us get us back to a normal life. I don't think they understand how to approach that that prayer, that connection. I don't think that's how the spiritual realm works. I think that we have to understand a better way of banding together and exercising that power if we want true change. Speaking of the pandemic, you seem to be pretty busy during the pandemic because you cranked out two books, yeah. right? And yeah. that I mean, in that time, did you write right. them before the pandemic started? Well, actually, the writing with Ghost Angels and the Spirits of the Dead was actually written many years before and then was revised over and over and over again to the point that it was like, okay, this it's, it's time for its birth. It's an idea whose time has come. It's got to come out. Yeah. And then Knock in the Attic, my second book, that actually had undergone several incarnations from way back. And I just could never get satisfied with it. I knew there was a story there that I wanted to tell, and I just didn't know how to do it. But then it, it finally gelled for me during the pandemic. And I finished it, got it, got it out and published. And it came out in February of this year. Now I'm working on my third book which is uh, going to be a lot of fun because it's the title of it is 20 Ways to Increase Your Psychic Abilities. And each chapter takes a specific spiritual technique, like the first chapter of psychometry, that explains to you the definition, what it is, how to learn it, how to practice it, how to learn it, how to use it, and then the real-world application of it. So in all of these chapters, all of these things that you learn are not parlor tricks or party tricks. It's not going to be able to, you're not going to go to a party and go, give me your ring and I'll tell you where you bought it, that kind of thing. It's learning how to do that, but then learning the real world application of that technique. They all do have real world applications. And that's what takes it from beyond the party trick stage to, hey, this is something that can really help me in life. Something meaningful. Something meaningful, yeah, something practical, absolutely. That's great. I like that because it, it's what you were saying before that the spiritual realm, it takes work. It takes cultivation it yep. and it's a it's a practice. It's a constant it practice that you, it is. you, you and That's you, what I tell people in each chapter. It's like, you know, this will work for you if you make time for it. And if you practice it and if you try and get diligent at it and, and keep going, you'll learn it and you can do it. But, you know, it takes that constant practice. It takes that constant dedication. Is there any inkling from the other side that it's possible we may just blow ourselves up because it's such a mess? No, the, the other side shows me that it is possible. I mean, the person that puts the Visualize World Peace bumper sticker on their car. Remember that old bumper sticker? Yeah, World Visualize Peace. World Peace. Yeah. yeah. Well, the person that puts that on their car and thinks, okay, yeah, we're, we're doing it. No, you know, that's not it. And the person that meditates, well, you made yourself feel good, but you haven't changed anything. There are techniques that we can learn that manipulate the spiritual realities in our lives. And then that in turn 
manipulates and affects the physical realities in our lives. Mm. And there are techniques that you can learn to do that. It's just like, you know, psychokinesis. That's a spiritual technique that physically affects something, that makes something move or that heals someone or does something like that. Those techniques are real, but they take learning that real technique and the study and practice to to develop them. And then just like anything else, if you're a, a seven foot tall guy that weighs 400 pounds and it's all muscle and you want to come in my door, I can't stop you, regardless of what I do. Right. You know, unless I shoot you with a gun, but I'm, I'm <laughs> talking about normal, normal I physical shoot you force. With a gun. There you go. But if that same guy comes over and I've got 20 people with me, he's not coming in the door. Right, right. So that's what we have to understand is, is this takes a magnification. One person can do a lot, but 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, 50 people can do a lot more. But it has to be coordinated, it has to be concentrated, it has to be focused, and it has to be without ego, and it has to be without somebody playing, well, I want to lead the group, you know, or I think we should do it this way, or whatever. That's what destroys everything. And when we learn to develop that and do that, which is what church is supposed to be for, but I became an ordained minister of a church and was an associate pastor of a small church for a very short period of time. And the things I saw, the machinations I saw in organized religion sickened me, disgusted me. The lies, the duplicity, the the greed. And plus, I have to say that all the time I was in the, the church and mainly in organized religion, I never saw a legitimate miracle happen inside the church. Hmm. I've seen plenty of things happen outside, but I never saw anything legitimate happen inside. So the idea is sound of getting people together in a congregation of some type, whether it's you know, a, a witchcraft coven or a prayer group at church or whatever, that concept is solid. But when you get there, the problem occurs with egos, with, you know, well, we have to do it this way. Well, why? Because this book says so, or because this guy told me this works and I follow him or whatever. And then we get in all these stumbling blocks and we get way and we short circuit ourselves. Yeah. And that brings me to the the third book that's coming out where you're going to give people the 20 ways to increase their own psychic abilities. For the listeners right now, is there like one thing that you'd say that you'd absolutely recommend? Like this will really help you get steady. And if you're in a group or if you're doing it individually. I think the, the main thing and what I tell my clients all the time is don't go to a person don't go to an organization, don't go to a book, don't go to a group. First and foremost, recognize that the other side is real, that the spiritual power is real and exists, and go to it and just say, I know you're there. I'm here to learn. I need help. Teach me, guide me, show me what I need to be doing. And then shut the hell up and listen. You know, <laughs> We ask and we pray and we affirm and we do this and we do that and we cast spells or whatever, and then we never shut up and pay attention. So you have to ask, you go to the source and you ask, and then you shut up and you listen. And what does listen mean? No cell phone, no music, no TV, no chatting with friends, silence. Go outside, look up at the sky, look at the birds, look at the trees, look at the clouds go by and listen. Spirit, talk to me. I'm listening. And shut up and listen. 
and you may get something right away. It may take months of doing that before you get something. It depends on where you're at and what you need to be taught and how much time and effort and sincerity you're devoting to it. But at some point, you'll get that word. You'll get that, that thing to do. And then the third part of it is then when you get that, act on it. It doesn't do a bit of good if you hear advice and you don't act on that advice if you don't do what you're told. And an example of that is, you know, I talk about literally guardian angels being real. I was on the bike one time. This is in writing with ghost angels and the spirits of the dead. I had scheduled myself a day off and I was riding up one of the interstates here in Florida. And the interstates here in Florida, the right lane, which is supposed to be the slow lane on the interstate, people go 80 miles an hour. You know, the speed limit posted to 70 and people go 80. And the middle lane, people go 90, 95. And the left lane, all bets are off. That's where everybody fantasizes that they're training for the Daytona 500 or something. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. So I'm riding along in the right lane on the interstate, and I'm lollygagging. I'm having a great time. It's a beautiful day. There's blue skies, sunshine, and I'm just enjoying being on the bike, being on the road, and I'm wanting to look at the scenery. So the guys talk to me, and they say, move into the left lane. And I start arguing after all these years. I start arguing. I'm like, guys, I'm having fun here. I'm looking at the same. I don't want to move in the far left lane because to jockey through this crowd of racing idiots, I'm going to have to be upshift, downshift, throttle on, throttle off, break on, break off, clutch in, clutch out, bob, lean, weave, and get over there through this traffic to get in the left lane. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm having fun here. And this time they go, John. Moving to the left lane. I'm like, okay, geez, I'm no better to ignore that. <laughs> so I jockey through the traffic and get over into the left lane, and I'm going faster than I want to be. I'm well below my high-speed riding capability, but I just don't want to be riding that fast. And I'm like, well, what the hell was that all about? Well, about that time over in the right lane where I was, this guy impacts some wreck occurs, and this guy's car is literally spinning around facing the wrong way now on the interstate in the lane where I was just at. And as he's, as his car spins around, he actually looks over at when we, we make eye contact during this wreck. And he spins on around and cars are jamming on the brakes and detritus from the wreck is blasting across all the lanes of the interstate like shrapnel. Here comes a hubcap and here comes a piece of a bumper and here comes this, here comes that. So I'm dodging and weaving that. I look back to see if I need to stop and know whether people have already stopped and, and people are breaking to avoid the wreck and people are already getting out to see if he's okay. And so I know they're going to call for help, call 911. So I go on my way. But the point of the story is I had trained myself to listen and I heard the voice. And when I heard the voice, I acted on what the voice told me. Now, if I hadn't have, I'd have been sitting right there when all that occurred, and I would have hit him, he would have hit me, no telling how many cars would have hit me in the process of whacking into him, and I wouldn't be here to tell you the story today. So that's the point of all this. you got to find something that works. you got to go to the source. you got to find something that works. Then you got to sit and be quiet and listen to it, listen for that voice to come to tell you what to do, and then when it does, you got to obey it. And that's the key to this for us individually and collectively. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have to do with the Baptist church, the Catholic church, the Presbyterian church. It doesn't have to do with Scientology. It doesn't have to do with unity. It doesn't have to do with Buddhism. It doesn't have to do with tarot cards. It doesn't have to do with psychics. It doesn't have to do with mediums. It has to do with going to the source, to this higher power and saying, hey, here I am. Help me. Teach me. Help me better my life and help me to better other people's lives.
Do you call that other power God? In a generic way, sometimes, yes. Sometimes I just refer to it kind of like the Native Americans did as the Great Spirit or, or, or just Spirit, sometimes Holy Spirit, just kind of whatever comes to mind, however I feel. But I feel there is this vast power, intelligence, creator energy out there that's something. And I don't think any of us have a handle on it. One of the smartest preachers I ever knew told me and told all his congregation all the time. He said, you know, when we die and get to the other side, we're all going to be so shocked and so surprised, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And I think, yeah, that's, that's probably the truth of it right there. We're going to get there. We're, we're thinking it's this way and we're going to go there. We're going to go, Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, we are. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I think that's very um, humble of him to say that. Yeah, and it's rare, actually, in my experience with preachers yeah. and priests and and the like. Yeah, very rare. Like, yeah. The the ego, like you said, it always yeah. rises to the top. Or the dogma, the tradition, the ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you one more question, just for this one, and that's the the question that I ask pretty much everybody at the end here, and that's what's the most profound spiritual, paranormal, woo experience you've ever had? Now, you've told me about. A flannel dude that like came right at you. I mean, there's a number of things that you told me. So we might have already covered it, but you've had over 800. You said now like a thousand thousand, paranormal experiences. So is there one that sticks out and and it like kind of tickles your brain every so often? Which one is that? Absolutely. Somewhere around 20. I had already, as I said, I had already developed this reputation as an as an accurate and powerful psychic reader and had all these insights and everything. And being 20, I'm young and I'm going to last forever. I'm not going to die. And I always had a pretty raucous sense of humor. So I was pretty cavalier about life and about things. And even with my gift, I had not developed the wisdom of age, maturity, insight to realize <laughs> all the things I was dealing with. So I was pretty cavalier about things, you know. And I enjoyed blowing people's hair back with the readings and making them go, oh, my God, wow. You know, I thought, oh, that's fun. In town there, there was this uh, woman who had a daughter that had a brain tumor. And I was aware, having grown up in the church, I was aware of both sides of the camp, both the mainstream church side, the, the Pentecostal church side, and the uh, the psychic, mediumistic, supernatural groups in town, the people that held seances, circles, all that type of thing. I was aware of all of those dimensions. And the interesting thing was everybody among all of those dimensions, all across the board, mainline church, all the way to the most ardent spiritualist, all said that God had come to them, in whatever terminology they used for their particular belief system, that God had come to them, said he was going to heal this girl, raise her up, and there would be such a revival in that town that it might spread throughout Texas, it might spread throughout the U.S. and the world, it would be so dramatic. So this had been said, had been going on for weeks now. So the girl's mother knew my mother, and she said, I understand that your son really has some spiritual insights and some spiritual power and, and some discernment and that maybe God talks to him or somebody talks to him, he gets, he gets this information. Would he please come? And come to our house and meet my daughter and see if God tells him anything. Pray with us. Give us any hope, anything you can do. So my mother asked me, and I said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go. Absolutely, I'll go. So I drove over to their house. It was a beautiful, bright blue sky, sunny afternoon, just gorgeous. 
And I walked up to the steps to the door and the mother met me at the door, opened up the door and the house was almost pitch black inside, seemed like to me. The girl's brain tumor put such pressure on her and gave her these hideous headaches, and I guess maybe even pressed on her optic nerves or something, that light hurt her and made everything worse. So they had all these heavy blankets hung over all the windows. So the house was very, very dark inside. And I thought, wow, what a contrast. And so I walked in, and the mother said, she's, she's in the, the living room here. And they, she had two daughters. She was in there with her sister. And she said, come in here and meet her and, you know, pray with her and, and give us something. And so I walked in, and this voice so loud in my head that it was almost audible externally said, she's mine. She will be with me within two weeks' time. And that's it. That's all it said. It didn't say it in a mean way. It wasn't malevolent. It was a pleasant sounding male voice. It was very matter of fact. And that's what it said. And I knew that in spite of all of these things that everybody in the town had said about this miraculous healing, I knew this voice had spoken the truth. And so I just stood there dumbfounded for a second. And I went over and I prayed with the girl and, and so on and so forth. Well, as I was there, they were packing up to go back to MD Anderson in Houston uh, because she was so bad, and they were going back to seek more treatment and see if anything would help. And uh, the mother walked me out. They were running around packing to leave. And the mother walked me out, and we stopped at the door, and she said, did God tell you anything? And in my youth and naivete and cavalier behavior, I said the most stupid, cliched thing you could ever possibly say. And I said, well, you know, we just, I didn't tell her what I had heard. And I said, well, you know, God's ways are not ours, and we have to trust in God. And at that moment, I wish somebody had bent me over and bungholed me with a broomstick or something. I mean, that was, <laughs> it was just the most useless thing on the planet to say. I might as well just opened up her door and thrown in a handful of rattlesnakes and said, there, bits, there you go. That was about as much worth as it was. And I knew it, but at the time, I didn't know what else to say or how to say it or what to do. And she knew that it was useless. And she looked down, her, her head fell down towards the the floor. And she said, well, thank you for coming and closed the door on me. And I was like, oh, my God, my God, my God, my God. Went out to my car and I sat there and I thought, here I am, having come from this dark dungeon of death out into this beautiful, clear, blue sky, sunshine, perfect, gorgeous day that just uplifts the spirit. And I thought, how many times do we drive on such a beautiful day and go by people's houses and not know of the heartache and the sorrow and the grief that's going on behind those closed doors. So that was a lesson that hit me between the eyes like a sledgehammer. And then, lo and behold, within two weeks' time, the girl was dead and gone. The voice had spoken the truth. Now, was that the voice of God? I don't know. Was it the devil? I don't know. Was it some angel, some higher power, some UFO? I don't know. I have tried to figure out to this day whose voice that was, and I've never been told, but the voice spoke the truth. And my question of the time, and still is, was if this being had this knowledge, had that much foresight, couldn't it have had the power to maybe heal that girl or to have taken her that day instead of two weeks more worth of misery and pain and suffering and torment? So that was my most meaningful experience in that it opened my eyes and changed the course of my life. It shook my faith, made me question my faith, woke me up to a level of maturity that I didn't have before and began to show me that 
a jillion people can say things and agree about something, but it don't make it so, and it don't make it true, and it don't mean it's going to happen. And I'm not setting myself up as special that, oh, I heard the voice of truth, but I did. I heard the voice of truth. That voice spoke the truth against all those other things that happened. And it wasn't an aggrandizement for me. It was me learning a lesson. Mm. You know, it was not like, oh, I got, I got the voice. I got the voice of truth. It wasn't that at all. It was me learning a lesson. And the lesson shocked me and mortified me and, and terrified me and shook my faith. And it was like, oh, my God. And then I began to realize the depth and the seriousness of the spiritual realm and of these gifts and of these communications and of these things we encounter changed my life forever. That was the most outstanding thing of everything I've experienced. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Even more than the fairy, huh? <laughs> I'm yeah. kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I, I see that that experience was layered for you. It was, yeah. it had, it was very much deeper. There were multiple yeah. lessons to be learned. Multiple so. lessons, multiple yeah. layers, multiple meanings. Yeah. I want to ask you before we end here, is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Did we miss anything that's like dying to come good, out? I think we've done a good job. You know, we'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll save some more for next time and we'll yeah. do it next time. You do. You have so many stories, I'm sure. Oh, my I mean, God. We haven't even we haven't even scratched the surface. I know. <laughs> I can tell. We haven't even talked about the books and what's in the books. It's like. Oh, it's just, it's crazy. I've just, I've just had so much happen in my life, but uh, yeah, we'll definitely do it again soon. And, uh, and we'll do some more and we, we've done a great job. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me. And and it's been great talking with you and yeah, we'll do it again soon. Wowzers. I will definitely be chatting with John again. He has some really strong opinions about exorcisms and demons. It's an interesting take and different from so many I've spoken with in the paranormal world. What do you think? Do you think exorcisms are real and necessary? Do you think ghosts can't get poltergeisty enough to really hurt us? There's lots to think about here. And if all this woo swimming around in your brain ever gets too confusing for you, because honestly, it sometimes does for me, remember our old mantra. I am my own guru. You are your own guru. Trust yourself. You are a powerful wizard, Harry. I'm so curious to hear more about John's experiences with hands-on healing and telekinesis, too. Those are wildly fascinating subjects. You can check out everything that John is up to at johnrussell.net. I've also added links to each of his books, Writing with Ghosts, Angels, and the Spirits of the Dead, and A Knock in the Attic in the show notes. We didn't really have the time to go into the details of his books. That's just because we talked about so much for so long. This episode got cut down because we got yammering away about all kinds of stuff. I feel like that was our preliminary conversation. I have some copies of the books that I'm going to dive into. So next time I'll have him on, we'll get into the details of those books, and then I will have read them so we can really dive into all that. You can read them in the meantime, so you're ready for that episode. Check them out. They're on Amazon. They're everywhere. Also, check out my first bonus episode on Patreon. It has taken me such a long time post-surgery, but I have finally done it. This episode is close to my heart. I personally share with you a woo chain of events I experienced earlier this year. It all starts with a ghost in my apartment and ends with a bizarre EMDR session where I am dubbed the Princess of Darkness. 
by two very, very scary entities. It gets weird, but it always does, doesn't it? Have a great week, peoples. Reach out to me if you've experienced any wooery. I hear that it's at an all-time high lately, so let me know your stories. Okay, bye! Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 